the knowledge sessions. Hello and welcome to this podcast from RCVS Knowledge, whose mission is to advance the quality of veterinary care for the benefit of animals, the public and society. My name is Lara Karim and today I have the pleasure of welcoming two leading veterinary professionals to discuss the clinical benefits of corporatisation in the veterinary industry. Dr Rachel Dean is Director of Clinical Research and Excellence in Practice and Co-Chair of the Clinical Board at Vet Partners Limited, which has more than 4,600 employees in over 400 sites across the UK. Rachel was the Founding Director of the Centre for Evidence-Based Veterinary Medicine and Clinical Associate Professor in Feline Medicine at the School of Veterinary Medicine and Science based at the University of Nottingham from 2009 to 2018. An internationally recognised leader in evidence-based veterinary medicine, Rachel is passionate about establishing practical ways of enabling decision-makers to use evidence-based veterinary medicine to improve care. Also with me is Professor Ulrika Grunert, Group Medical Quality Manager at Anicura, one of Europe's leading providers of veterinary care for companion animals. The company was established in 2011 as the first merger of companion animal hospitals in the Nordic region and was born from the idea that sharing resources creates opportunities for better veterinary care. Ulrika has extensive experience in antimicrobial resistance and infection control within veterinary care from the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences and in 2016 she was appointed Sweden's first Associate Professor in Infection Control across all healthcare disciplines including veterinary and human medicine. Rachel and Ulrika, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Rachel, to start with, would I be right in saying that much has been written about the business benefits of the large corporates in areas such as back office support and procurement, etc., but very little has been written by comparison on the clinical benefits? Absolutely. Um, the business benefits um, came first and all the opportunities of coming together to form larger veterinary businesses were definitely um focused on first but I think there's now a real move towards looking at how when we have large groups of clinical teams working together within the same business that we can use that greater breadth of knowledge and experience and expertise and the data that's generated in those clinics to actually make a difference to veterinary health care so I think you can see that with the number of appointments within um, some of our corporates and the activities they're doing now that people are recognising that opportunity and that's obviously why we're meeting to talk today about um, the opportunities it does bring. It's why I moved into the sector away from academia. I spent a long time in university looking at how we could use evidence to influence care and now my job is definitely about how we implement that and that is much better and much more impactful on a larger scale. You're not doing it, Ulrika. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, and much harder, I would say. Yes. <laughs> to get it implemented. Yes, yes. So if we're looking at quality improvement initially and thinking about introducing this at a corporate level, have you got views and experience on how you secure support and maintain the momentum once that is introduced? Do you want to go first this time? Yeah, um... We started in 2015 uh, launching a, a medical quality program and the first thing that came to our mind was we, that we have to see what is going on in the clinics and right now we have 300 clinics, at that point we have 200, but still, so it was still too many to be out there and see what they're doing, so we thought we were going to do some simple surveys. So we decided on quarterly measures 
measure in different way how they perform in an area that we think is important and we are focusing on the patient. So it's all about patient safety. And that makes them sort of also the results they get back from this survey also shows where they are in relation to the others in the same country. Would make them sort of think about how we can improve and they also get improvement tips and tricks back to really clinically get better in what they are lacking. So that was something we were thinking of. And also then we introduced uh, quality coordinators in each clinic to make her more get into the clinics because we are relying too much on the practice managers sometimes and they have a lot of things on their board. So this is a new role? Yeah, it's a new role. Yeah, so uh, we try to engage those and having now our second quality conference in Munich in December, we, in we invite them and discuss mainly change management and implementation yes. in the different areas that we work in and we have nine areas that we focus on so yeah, yeah. So that is some of the parts that we are trying to elaborate and also i was very happy actually that we also got the quality measures into the budget process so we can sort of also push in the budget process if they want sort of new medical equipment they also are addressed, okay, well, how have you been performing when it comes to the surveys and how have you sort of uh, done with the improvement step that has been sort of given to you and stuff like that. So, so it has a degree of incentive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 I think the idea of why you want to do it and then giving people responsibility for it on a practice level is huge. We're much earlier in the process of our quality improvement program, which is part of our clinical excellence strategy. And in terms of securing support, I would say we get it at all levels. People want to know how good they are, so clinical teams want to know. They also want to know what the next-door neighbours are doing, so that that feeds to the competitive nature of veterinary professionals. But um, the support is definitely there. A lot of people don't know how. Um, so our jobs definitely, within our business, by the sound of it, are to create a framework so it's possible, but it has to come from the top down, like all aspects of clinical excellence, I think, if you have buy-in from the top that they believe that um, quality matters and that can be to do with patient patient safety or patient outcomes or um, many different things when it comes to quality improvement, um, it's part of your culture. You need a culture that's willing to say we're good and we need to celebrate what's good but we, there's also areas where we can improve and incentivizing that and rewarding people mm -hmm. for it. Similarly with our clinical board structure, over time There'll be somebody in every practice that is associated with the clinical board activities. So it's a way of spreading a message on the very local level, but then also having clinical board champions who can help locally push the um, momentum along. But it also, I like the idea of the new role because it gives people a new opportunity too. So it's a good bit of career yeah. development. Yeah. But clinical teams want to do well. They really want to know, yeah, and, and they have a hard time finding out in some areas what is really the right way. Yes. Because there's loads of information, and the, I think veterinary medicine has sort of is evolving so fast, and the area is so large. Uh, uh, to so to be sort of an expert in each area, you can't. You need to get help from the corporate level in some instances. Yeah. And, and because the, of that breadth of so many things, another way that we're working on at the moment to secure support is there are certain things that we need to know. We need to know how safe the delivery of our care is and what we do, but also using our clinical teams to help us prioritise areas that they think 
they want to improve so it's not just top down but bottom up so there might be certain aspects of clinical care that they're uncertain about what the right thing to do is or what are the better things to do so getting them to come with the ideas we create a framework which means we can look at the quality of care and then work out how to improve it is definitely they're not quiet about what they want to get better at Mm. and that's good yeah that leads me on really to something that I was going to ask your opinion on it in terms of the systems and the people um, that needs to be put in place to, to get from a top-down corporate approach to encouraging the adoption of, uh, and um, continued use, I suppose, of, of, of quality improvement at the practice level. I think there has to be a clear clinical leadership that prioritises quality of care. And to do that, you have to show that you're constantly learning. Because if you know it all already, you can't improve. Or if you think you know it all mm-hmm. already, you can't improve. Mm-hmm. You need the senior management team to walk that walk of a degree of uncertainty so you can look for improvement, but also that admission of when things don't go right, it's fine and clear to be able to talk about it and together work out a way of improving it. And there's some nice work that's been done in medicine that shows if that comes from the top, everybody has to do it. But if they can see the leaders doing it, then that will improve care and that will save lives. So I think... A top-down approach is really important. Our CEO is a veterinary surgeon. I don't have to explain to her why quality of care matters. She she gets it, she understands, she wants it, as does the most junior trainee nurse we've got. But we also want our senior business development teams to understand why our patient outcomes are important. And so if everybody's talking the same talk from the top-down, but also from the bottom-up, I think that helps. But yeah. You know, there's nice pieces of research that shows if you have good, strong senior clinical leadership around quality improvement, loads of things. Yes. Improve. Yeah. And uh, I, I think also we're talking more of the technical things, like technical systems, because <clears throat> I was, I think we are really in big need of a good patient medical record system that can help us out getting our data very easily, so the practice manager can really sort of just push a button and then they can sort of get a, the whole picture. How's it going? Uh, also help out with the um, following up patient so we yeah. can easily get data on the outcome because today I think the outcome data is really wow up in the air. We don't know really how it goes. It's more of the patient, uh, the owner hasn't called back, so it's fine, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Yes. So finding out, but we need to, to have the technical system so it can be an easy task to find out how it's going. And that will be really something, we are not there yet. No, no. We have we have several several systems, or I would say many systems, patient medical record system, and yeah. So we need help. The situation is same in the UK. So um, there is a default idea of success if you don't see the patient again, but we don't actually follow up. But the the information that is in the patient record can be hard to extract. Not impossible, and lots of different research groups are yeah, doing things with absolutely. it. But um, but for a practice manager, yes. it really needs to be very easy because if they can see it yeah and they can see that they can put themselves into context of others easily they want to improve that's the nature of being a clinical professional but it is getting the data at your fingertips in a usable way that is a massive challenge yeah yeah. um not impossible no but it's going to take some time it will take some time yeah Uh, in terms of um um, sharing clinical knowledge and data among practices do you feel there are further benefits to that? Well, uh, to me, that is really sort of fundamental for us to get the knowledge sharing going. 
for me from a quality perspective also I would like us to be on the same page I mean see on the mm -hmm. same knowledge level that the ones who sort of ended their education 30 years ago will go on the same path or will be on the same page as the ones who, who are specialized uh, today uh, but, but it's really hard uh, I think we have a good group that are the clinics that we have bought are sort of into that sort of mindset of evolving and getting better and uh, knowing the latest but it's not easy to get the information out mm. to everyone and see what they are sort of grasping and uh, and what uh, they are taking in so I think there is a lot of things still to be done in that area but I think it's that is really one of the top things of being in corporate to manage that you can sort of from the the most specialized diplomate getting easy data on how the latest techniques are for this kind of procedures like in surgery or something and getting that to a more first-line clinic so they they don't need to leave to read abstracts or go to a course they can sort of more easily over some technical system or physical meetings get yeah. that information I think getting everybody to talk the same language so when talking about quality improvement or what is safety or what is quality that everybody understands it in the same way that makes it easier for people to talk but that breadth of experience that now exists in a corporate group compared to a five vet practice with six nurses yeah. we're now four and a half thousand people in our clinical teams harnessing that knowledge and then sharing it is a challenge <laughs> yeah um but it's something we have to do just understanding there is more than one way of doing it in certain situations this is probably going to give you the best quality outcome and in other situations it's this one when you've worked in just one practice with a, a few number of colleagues if you can open those doors and get people talking advising networking and educating each other then that's huge in um gp practices in the uk they have these things called knowledge circles which is a sort of a ripple effect so one practice starts doing something they talk to the neighboring practice and then mm -hmm. it gets bigger okay. and bigger and we need to try and find ways of enabling the knowledge to spread through the groups and ideally between the groups to help the profession move forward. Yeah. It can work and it's a massive asset to know you've got four and a half thousand colleagues rather than four. So we talked about the benefits of the technical systems and also the, the more human side um, of, of sharing data. Am I right in thinking that you're probably using a combination of those different means of sharing data broadly at the moment to try and maximise the actual yeah. uh, you know proportion of, of people who are open and, and receptive yeah exactly we are yeah we are trying we are using quite uh, well now i would say uh sort of facebook like it's called yammer mm -hmm. where we try to exchange information easily quickly like uh, the younger generation really wants like you can yes. be on the smartphone and then you easily tap in and you get the sort of really quality uh, answers to your questions and your so if you have a case that you want to present or something like that so I think we are but still I, I don't think we I fall back to the patient medical record system because I think that one could really help us I think if we could get a good connection between that one and also some kind of knowledge base if they can sort of talk to each other and that you can easily find you know yeah. go, you don't need to do the google search or something like that I mean that I mean, in a corporate, you should only be able to look at the data that we have. That should be enough, and we know would know that it would be good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
uh, I look at the computer screen and you flip between these two pages very easily and you find out what you need to do with this patient or yeah. what you should not forget or yeah but that is a challenge <laughs> yeah yeah we use multiple methods yeah. of um, communicating but yeah, of if, course, you, yeah. if you could find one route in that if you were already doing your day-to-day job and if you just clicked a hyperlink it would get you or you start typing a word and it would get you into all of the resources or all of the data within ideally within your corporate group but then potentially any external data sources that are useful so it's there in the hands of clinicians when they make decisions that is definitely the holy grail but it's difficult and it takes time to look Mm. for any kind of information and the easier you can make that the better and again when you become a bigger company the IT support the potential for getting investment in the way you handle Mm -hmm. data is so much more than you can do in a practice and I've obviously worked from the the academic side of things trying to get data from practice you can gosh vets want to share what they know and what they have Um, but it is difficult to um, bring that together in a usable format whereas if it's your data within your corporate group we should be able to find a way of making it more useful than it is at the Mm -hmm. moment and timely exactly Mm -hmm. so we focused um, a lot on talking about sharing data are there different nuances or different ways that you might consider or that are actually in use at the moment in terms of sharing clinical knowledge more broadly i don't know if you'd see that as as a different thing or whether that's part of the of the of the bigger picture complementing the data itself 10 years at the Centre for Evidence-Based Veterinary Medicine was a fabulous experience, but what it did teach me is that in many areas where people have clinical queries, the traditional published evidence is lacking, either in quality or in absolute existence. Mm. You know, often there's nothing there. So what we're starting to do is find ways of um, harnessing people's expert opinion. And But when I say experts, I don't mean someone with lots of letters after their name. I mean someone that has treated over their lifetime 2,000 dogs for a certain disease if we have 10 people that have treated 2,000 dogs and they they can talk together or input into one system how they deal with it, then we can say 80% of vets do this, 20% of do, do that. There's no evidence to say one is right or wrong, but we can at least share that opinion and we're starting to do it around some of the common procedures to find out what everybody does and what everybody thinks is right and wrong. And that is the first steps of evidence-based medicine. So that knowledge expertise and experience is hugely valuable trying to use it at the implementation stage so we use it as some raw evidence sometimes when everything else is lacking but also particularly with quality improvement finding out what has worked and what has not worked in terms of how you actually implement what is known is huge huge bit of knowledge and science that we are now tapping into Mm. and i think for me i would also like to more go into the area of um, sort of measuring outcomes to find it because now we are focusing maybe a bit more on processes and see what processes are in place but then go to like like we have done now monitoring surgical site infections and we can really see sort of the the distribution among the clinics and i think if we go to the ones that are doing really good and we can find out what they are doing we don't need to find exactly but they have some good procedures that we can sort of document and we can take them to the ones that are not performing that well and saying hey you guys can you look into this and see what you can do about it Mm. or we can do audits but going from the outcome really how how is the patient doing and that 
into sort of a more quality improvement steps. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a really important part of knowledge yeah. that, again, we, I think as a group, we have an obligation to share the fact that we have a range of outcomes, but it's much better if the people that are doing really well help the people for certain things that aren't doing so good, it's much better that they help each other than we try to, mm-hmm. because they know what works. And sometimes yeah. it's because it's a completely different clinical setting that it works better in one than the other. But um, as we start to produce more resources within Bet Partners, we want to put together virtual implementation teams that will help share that knowledge. Right. So yeah. we've done it. Oh gosh, we were a bit scared. We've never done that before. It's like, well, this is how we did it. Which is why I like the yeah. idea of um, people within the practices having that role of quality because yeah. they will end up with a whole load of tacit knowledge that we just need to share somehow. And it's not a big scientific trial and it's not lots of data. It's actually how you do something. Mm. Mm. And um, if we could share that, that would be great. So how can um, the resources, the sheer scale, we've already kind of touched on that a little already, of corporates have this beneficial impact on, on data capture and analysis? Well, I, I, I sort of come back to the same. <laughs> it's all about measuring outcomes. I mean, you get the data so easily and we get sort of a, a multi-centric setting, international, that I think is very hard to get anywhere else. And also the publication that we are now, um, will, for the surgical site infection that will come out, I think it's sort of great to get those data very fast and out. And, and we don't have it, but I would like us also to have an epidemiologist that we can sort of hire from the group level and help all the clinicians that have sort of small data projects, the studies they want to do and sort of facilitate this work that can be really hard and take a long time if you're going to approach university or, or something like that. So to me, it's more about getting the surveys and the measurements going and then help out with the analysis. And yeah, I think finding those new partnerships and um, we're in the early stages of what will be our clinical research program at Bet Partners, but some of it is when you find something out, we need to tell the wider world. So there is a benefit there. So a, a proportion of our practices in the UK will remain independent, and that's brilliant. Um, but equally, others will be in other corporate groups. And if we find something useful out, we should share that, whether that's through peer review publication, the veterinary press, with people like RCVS Knowledge to say we found this thing, we need to now talk about it. Um, so everybody can benefit is really yeah, important absolutely. but um also i think finding partnerships with others whether they be from the pharmaceutical industry or university or other corporates to work together so that we need to make sure the data we generate from our patients is used to the benefit of our patients mm. but there is a bigger picture to that too that so long as the research we're doing with our data does that can we also then contribute to other groups that are generating knowledge for a different reason. What's tend to happen in the past is that people have used practice data to find stuff out that's academically interesting or commercially interesting. We can flip that a little bit now and we can do research because it's clinically relevant and interesting, but that shouldn't be a barrier to also contributing to the other types of research that we still need. We need to relate it back to bench top research or genetics or pathology mm. and we can't do those within our no, businesses no. but we have all of that beautiful clinically relevant uh, data, data. Yeah. and trying to find ways of partnering there would yeah. be brilliant and it's a strength that 
individual practices can't gather on their own because they don't have the infrastructure of the central support teams um, or the expertise. They're experts at being clinicians and they could, we can't all be experts at everything. So they need to carry on doing that great job but get the support, um, as Ulrika said, from other people yeah. to maximise that. Yeah. And that's really hard as a small independent practice to do that. In terms of um, the scale of um, the corporate groups, and you've talked a lot about the benefits, there are challenges, presumably, to um, ensuring people are working from the same evidence. I'm not sure how much evidence we use in everyday, so I don't know if they know if the what evidence they're using, if it's good or bad. I think they are, they are doing a lot of things up on their sort of clinical expertise, clinical experience. Uh, but if that really is based on something, I don't know. How that is sort of what uh, I struggle with being a vet. I didn't know, what, I just did what I was thought was right because I was taught that way and I was trained and it worked well. Uh, but at the same time, we know that the follow up, the outcome follow ups, the health of the patients after a surgery or a, a medical treatment is, is not that well performed. Um, maybe on the every, on the individual patient is well performed, but not on on the sort of the how could you say the the herd level the population the popular yeah. yeah because we we don't get the good overview yes and once again we need a system that can help us with that and from that we can build up more evidence that we are doing the right thing yeah so if we can provide that information I think we can really sort of sort this out and get us moving. I think it's really variable how much, between individuals, how much evidence yeah. they use or don't use. Mm. So the bigger question of are they is one question, and definitely I have those conversations all of the time, and we have the extremes of people that will do a fabulous, structured, bibliographic search to people that um, don't at all search for, for anything other than potentially in a textbook or, or talk to their clinical colleagues and there's value in that too but obviously we have differences of opinions <laughs> between vets and some of that is sometimes evidence-based sometimes that's experience-based sometimes it's a mixture of the two but certainly um for example when new products arrive on the market um the evidence base can be variable but they can still be licensed and so one of the things that we want to do is when we produce resources within vet partners they're structured in a similar way which includes some of the same language around how big the study was or how similar the population mm. was to what we have so people start to again talk the same language but also by reading something that's clinically useful they gain some skills of evidence-based medicine which is how to critique um what is there because yeah sure some people read a week, week study and think it's great other people read a week study get halfway through and put it in the bin mm. and that's partly um skills and training so if you don't have never been taught you're probably not even going to realise that you need to do it and that you can do it. Yes. Yeah, you and have to have the time to do yeah, it. You need the time, yeah. And that is, uh, or it's usually a lack of time. Yeah. Yeah. And to read a primary research paper and then distill it into something that actually helps you make a clinical decision whilst using the art of veterinary medicine too is a real challenge and we need more um, secondary resources, I would call them. So like the knowledge summaries of... Um, RCVS knowledge or best bets or critically appraised topics that do some of that work for the clinician but then it's still our job to make sure it gets 
into the clinic and yeah. it's available and implemented yes yeah. <laughs> and implemented uh, but there's there's many challenges for people using evidence because sometimes they don't even know it exists if it doesn't yeah. you can't use it well then you can't access it or when you can access it, you realise it's not very useful after all. I think we, we have started now with journal clubs, sort have of, you? Over, yeah, over over Skype. Right. Mm. So we try to do it that way and um, to get more of the critical thinking starting at least in some groups. Yeah. And hopefully we can evolve that even further very easily yeah. with, with the technical. Some of our practices support. are doing them already. Yeah. And we would like to. Um, I'd like to moonlight on some of them to see which bits work for them, but yeah. they really like them, and it's a good way of drawing people together when you do it virtually from different yeah. centres. So you don't necessarily have to get up at half past seven to get to work for eight am in the morning. You can do it from the road or from home. Um, but yeah, I think that is a good way yeah. of learning those. The skills. only thing we have in our issues are with the language barrier sometimes, and yeah, we try to do it in English, of course. But mm. I mean, um, but you have eleven countries. Yeah. <laughs> Just to add to the challenge. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so can we look now at, um, in the corporate context, uh, accountability? Who is more accountable for clinical outcomes? Is it the corporate? Is it the practices, the constituent elements? And how, we've talked a little bit about this already, but how is evaluation, to the extent that it is, conducted across the piece? I think it's all about responsibilities to answer the first question. Um, every time an animal walks into a clinic, whichever part of our clinical team sees them, that makes them responsible. We we feel within our group that we are responsible for supporting our teams and helping them do that. We're not going to tell them what to do so they can keep their autonomy, but um, we have a professional code of conduct and we are, as individual clinicians, responsible for the clinical outcomes on an individual level and then think as a group, I think we have a professional and corporate responsibility to make sure the care we're giving is good for the things that are most important, which are our patients. So it, it goes at all levels, which is why um, I think more of these roles are being, de- like Ulrika's and mine, are being developed in mm. the corporate groups. Yeah, well, uh, I agree. I mean, it's just different levels, but still it's always the vet or the nurse that has the first responsibility or the major for the patient they actually but then we do the support yeah. and they are the, they are they don't i don't think they realize their oh the power is quite the right word but they're the only ones that can implement change and make mm. a difference to their patients and they want to make them better and we without them we could do all the structures and the ideas in the world <laughs> and it won't make a difference yeah. so it's the true clinical decision makers that impact care mm-hmm. um but we do have a responsibility to look at that variation and look at why it exists and help them yeah. constantly improve yeah. and that is a group responsibility exactly. but, yeah. but they have the power and they are the brilliant yeah. brilliant ones that make the difference we've talked a lot about data and the, the importance of using evidence but you also mentioned the art yeah. of veterinary science and care and so how do we well, I suppose we need to be aware of um, data being part of the full picture in terms of determining a, 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 a treatment, a care approach. So how do we avoid treatment and diagnoses becoming too data-led? Is that an inflammatory question? Is that possible? Um, I think if you, to use a word I used earlier, if you become too formulaic, you'll get into 
danger zone. Mm. So if you start becoming too prescriptive about how a certain condition should be treated, then you will start to do a disservice to some patients. So trying to get everybody to do the same thing has no benefit. has a benefit to some patients, but not all patients. So the data should, population data should inform our knowledge about a disease or a way we treat it. But then you have to turn that into individualised medicine. So people need to know what the data is, but then also, as an active clinician, be able to look at their patient and see where within that population this particular individual sits. So then you can work, or not, sometimes they're not, mm. they're an outlier from whatever data we have, or we don't have any data. Um, so again, it's treating that patient as an individual, but applying the knowledge of the population definition of epidemiology when you're looking at it clinically um taking the population data but not using it in a prescriptive fashion but using that to work out this individual where in that range within that population does it sit therefore what the right thing to do is we need more data but what we don't want to do is have the tyranny of the data or the evidence dictating to clinicians what we do no and i I think that is not a risk today at all i mean we we more lack data and um so i think to be too too dependent on data and telling people what to do that is not on and uh, and also I think from a recruitment perspective people will not want to work in such a place where you're sort of told mm. exactly what to do I mean that is absurd if you're a veterinarian or a nurse so yeah no I think that the risk of that is is, is low some days it would be nicer to get closer to that exactly we need more data but then we mustn't let it overtake um how you as a clinician use it but when we do have more data we need to make sure people understand that and work accordingly or maybe need to move towards a different approach yeah yeah. there's a lovely venn diagram of evidence-based medicine where one circle is i call it patient and customer values and circumstance slash outcomes used to be just patient in in medicine but then there's the clinician's experience and expertise and then there's the evidence or you could call that data and the holy grail is where those three circles overlap in a venn diagram and sometimes when you have too much data or you get a bit skewed in evidence-based medicine you think it's all about the evidence but it's not the the way you do that cleverly is look at your patient look at your customer client pet parent whatever we're going to call it and them not it um, and then know the background data for the disease or the test, but then have good clinicians with experience and expertise to implement it. Well, you just mentioned there in, in, in that uh, one of the elements in that diagram, the, the client, and um, I wanted us to spend some time, if we can, thinking about benefits of corporatisation or effects of corporatisation on the animal owner. Hmm. Yeah, like yeah I, I mean, I... I see it as a sort of, well, you get the quality assurance mm-hmm. along the whole chain of clinics that you provide for your, the owners for us in Europe. But at the same time, of course, I realize that that, it, that is an utopia to get them on the same level everywhere. But I know, for instance, that we, have, we are only buying clinics that are really sort of good. They have top marks when it comes to certain outcomes, recordings and stuff like that. But... So I, I think I, I would like to, to, to see us as a quality signum and mm-hmm. that will help the, the owner. Um, 
at the same time, we also know that the owner is not really into quality thinking. They think if you're a bad, you're a good. Yes. So we need, we as corporate also need to work much more in informing what the corporates are really doing and what kind of support the, the practices are getting from the group level. And uh, we have just started that work. We have a long way to go to get more information out. And I, then I don't mean about selling it, like commercializing it. It's more about really just telling what we are doing and why. And then it's, it's for their pet and um, to get the best treatment and care. The um, animal owning population put an awful lot of trust in our professions. Mm-hmm. And that's great. We need to make sure that we um, maintain that trust. And in the world where you can find out many facts, we, we need to start providing some of the information of the risk of anaesthesia or post-surgical site infection and be completely honest about that so people will start to demand it but we do need to work with the animal owning population so you can still trust us but we're now able to show a bit in a more uh, numerical or consistent way that this is just how good we are so you can trust us so don't turn to get help for your animals Mm. from other other groups transparency yeah because transparency leads to trust so if we start talking about things that need improving and we're honest with our clients about it they should be able to still trust us if we if we hide that then that makes us more untrustworthy um there are other people competing for animal health care and we need to make sure we are the trusted professions to come to and that does involve owner engagement and not letting them be fearful that things go wrong sometimes but talk, talk about error and risk and that we will yeah. openly accept it. Mm. Um, and that does lead to better And we do care. everything to prevent it. I mean, we yes. have the whole preventive work behind these kind of incidents yes. or what do you call them, patient safety events. Yes. Yeah. And I think that for clinicians, it's hugely comforting to be able to go, we know this is the risk. Of, we can't do it very well for me- most things at the moment, most procedures. This is the risk of this. So mm-hmm. actually, that's really low. And your dog is in a certain demographic that it hardly ever happens. And that makes everybody feel better. Whereas at the moment, we talk about anaesthetic deaths being very rare. Mm. How rare? If you start to ask, (laughs) yeah. Um, But uh, clients should demand a standard of care for their animals and we should provide that. Mm. Is that something that you're seeing more of? Do you have um, clients coming to you increasingly? I think they're becoming more challenging yeah. yeah that might be because they're more informed ill-informed or well-informed mm-hmm. um and we need to give i think our clinical teams the the armor to be able to talk back mm. yeah, um, i think so too so so i think they are there's lots of data in the uk i don't know how it is um across europe that people will ask their neighbor and check google before they'll mm-hmm. ask a vet about their pet yeah and or the breeder. Or the breeder. Yeah. Yes, or the pet shop. Yeah. Um, or the person on the dog walk who may or may not know something or everything. And so if we we need to start showing why we're the trusted place to come and that will help. That will obviously help business too, but it will help the patients more importantly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So at the start of, of the podcast, we touched briefly on um, the importance of culture, um, top-down leadership in, in the area of QI. 
can we return and, and, and close with looking at um, the importance of culture, the nature of culture in, in corporates, um, particularly in relation to, to quality improvement? I mean, it's, it's huge. It's as important at corporate level as it is at practice level. And um, we see a variety of different types of cultures. Mm. And um, it's important that we put emphasis on that as part of our clinical excellence strategy. We have an initiative called the Healthy Clinical Culture at Vet Partners. And it overlaps with um, HR to a lot of extent. But it also, it's about creating an environment where you feel safe and everybody talks about the things they're unsure about and everybody also talks about error so one bit of the work that we will do is to work with the Veterinary Defence Society and their Vet Safe um, initiative where people can com- confidentially report error and what we'll be able to see is as well as practice practices can see their practice level data we'll also be able to see a corporate level data and when you're in a big group um, there might be some catastrophic errors that have occurred the mistakes they're fine, we can get through them. Um, but it might have happened to two or three practices in the group, but not others. And rather than wait for it to happen to all the others in the group, we can look at that, put interventions in place, and so nobody ever has to experience um, the, the catastrophic events that follow a significant error in practice. And that's what quality improvement is about. Catastrophic error drives quality improvement. But what in a big corporate group, it might have happened in two or three practices, but we can actually absolutely prevent it in others. Um, but you can only do that if you've got a culture of trust and strong values that are patient-centred. Um. Yeah, I mean, you really need to have a, a climate in the clinic where you sort of thrive for getting better, where you scrutinise what has happened, what has been done yesterday, night shift, and record it. And we also have now our own computerised system where you enter the medical incidents or the patient safety events and we get a data from the whole group into one server and we can pull out and also I think it was really neat that you sort of if you find if the practice manager find this incident relevant for others you click in box and it immediately spreads to everyone so that you can find out very quickly Mm. that this incident be aware this can happen and I think that is an en- excellent tool to prevent major damage, but also to get more information about really smaller things that can sort of, um, you can show to others that we have solved this routine in this way and you get the sort of the everyday practice life more smooth and easygoing. So I think we need the open culture really coming on to bring in the quality improvements in place and again that has to go all the way through every practice and all the way through the group so um people who might be the most junior vet in the practice need to be able to talk as openly as the senior vets in the practice as openly as the whole of the the support team and that relies on trust um again so if we trust each other that mistakes happen but we will do something about it but equally, we will trust each other. When something goes really well, we'll, do, we'll talk about it too. Yeah, exactly. Well, great to end on a positive note. <laughs> yeah. Regrettably, <laughs> um, our time is coming to a close. So are there any areas of the discussion today you'd like to highlight? Any closing remarks? Do you have any predictions for benefits of corporatisation in the future? I'm really looking to the digitalization area to help 
me as out when it comes to quality improvement. I want to have it easy for our eager practice manager, for our eager vets and nurses that wants to improve and make it sort of a really a good tools for them to work with. I think that would be amazing. That is my, my wish list. <laughs> Um, I think we need to make sure we realise the idea of safety in numbers and that can be our data but that's also us coming together as a group to have a stronger voice and corporatisation gives you that if you all stand together and um, push forwards so our patient um, outcomes improve and giving our clinical teams out in practice the realisation that they have that power not just to change clinical care but also to contribute to something that directly comes back at them to help them improve care and that comes back from a clinical that comes best from a clinical setting and that clinical setting has just got bigger so the impact should be bigger and um rather than feeling fearful of that size actually let's look at the benefits of safety in numbers and use that to maximize the healthcare that we give i think it's a really exciting yes. opportunity S- super exciting it's what we do yeah. what we do yeah um and that doesn't mean you can't do it as an individual um, veterinary practice, but they will actually get some support from us and we will get insight from them, and that is a good thing. Mm. Rachel and Ulrika, thank you so much for the time. Thank you. Thank you. So for more podcasts from RCVS Knowledge, find us on iTunes, Podbean, or go to our website at rcvsknowledge.org.